The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Everyone doing okay this morning? Yeah? Ready? That was, wasn't that great? Uh, worship through singing? That's right. It was good. It was good. Turn in your copy of God's Word now to Revelation 5. Revelation 5 is where we will be and spend the, the next uh, few moments together. And as you're turning there, let me just ask this question. What's real or genuine or authentic? More specifically, what, what is real, genuine, authentic worship? Or what's a real, genuine, authentic follower of Christ? See, many claim the designation Christian, don't they? But what makes an authentic Christ follower? If you've been around redemption for any length of time, uh, you've probably heard us uh, talk about the three W's, right? As you walked in that front door, uh, whether you uh, were aware of your surroundings or not, there was a black banner, right? And said, worship Christ. Anyone know, walk with Christ? And what does the bottom one say? Did you make it that far as you passed by it? And? Work for Christ, that's right. Worship, walk, and work. As you survey the scriptures, you'll find these three attributes uh, defining the life of every Christian in some form or fashion as an individual person and in a corporate sense in the life of the believer. And so over the next month, we're going to uh, survey the scriptures and stop at some strategic places along the way to take in the landscape. And I'm really excited for this month. For the month of August, as uh, you've been made aware through our announcements and other things, we're going to look at the life of a true worshiper. A true worshiper. And really today, we begin at the end. We begin at the end. The book of Revelation is the last book in your Bible, right? It's the last one there. If you don't know where it is, just kind of flip to the back and you'll find that word revelation and uh, go to chapter five. But we begin at the end. Revelation, anyone know who it was written by? It was written by the? John, that's right, the apostle John. He wrote it while he was exiled uh, on this island of Patmos because he was an authentic follower of Christ. He was exiled there and he uh, had this uh, uh, very unique vision from the Lord. He had this vision where the spirit came to him and opened his eyes to see things and to write things that were taking place there and the things that would one day come. And so in chapters two and three, he has specific instructions, letters to seven churches in that day. But then in chapter four, just look there, it's probably just a page over for you. In chapter four, verse one, and after this, that's after these uh, things that he's written down and these letters that have been communicated to him to these churches. After this, he says, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And what John has given then is a, a, a glimpse into the throne room of heaven here in chapter four and chapter five. It's really a scene unlike many, uh, any other in the scriptures. There's some uh, in the prophets that get a glimpse into the glory of God. 
and give this vision of, of what it looks like around the throne. You know, some of those like uh, prophetic writings and the names that you can't pronounce and there's all these like strange descriptions of uh, who God is and like many headed figures and people with all kinds of eyes and, and all that. You've ever read any of those things? Yeah. Yeah, so there's some like that. Now, John is given a similar vision here, and then he's given some events that will take place, things that are still yet even to take place in the future, the things that we have even sung about this morning, the great hope of Christ's return for his people, where he sets up and rules in his kingdom. And these are the beginnings of John's writings and what he sees in this vision. And so take up your copy now, and I wanna read Revelation 5 for us. And then we'll, uh, after that, I'll explain it, we'll go through it, but I wanna read it here for us. Now, this is Revelation 5, verse one. This is John speaking, and he says, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within, and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy? to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamp each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, and which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked. And I heard round the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is God's word for God's people an interesting scene, isn't it? There's some intriguing characters, aren't there? There's some lively worship, isn't there? This is a pretty, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's maybe a strange scene for us. What does this all mean? 
Well, I just want to remind you, just like with any book, but especially when we come to the book of Revelation, if we want to rightly understand, interpret, and and apply this book to our lives, we need three things, don't we? We need a dose of humility. We need that uh, attitude that says, I need some help in understanding this, right? We need some humility. The second thing we need is some hermeneutics. Some hermeneutics, you're like, some Herman who? Hermeneutics is really the, the systematic study of God's word. And because the word of God is a literary piece, it's a book, there are certain rules that uh, govern how we read, understand, and apply this book. And so we want to have a great grasp on a literal, grammatical, historical uh, uh, hermeneutic when we approach God's word rightly applying things and rules that we read poetry different than we read apocalyptic literature, different than we read letters and we read uh, the historical books. And so there are rules, there are hermeneutics. This is why you go to seminary, why you go to Bible school, why you learn these and read books and all that. And some of these words may be really big and you don't understand or whatnot, you can ask your small group leader and uh, maybe they can help you or they can suggest some, some good resources if you wanna get more of a, uh, of a great handle on how to uh, rightly apply and interpret uh, God's word. So you need humility, you need hermeneutics, that equipping, and you also need the Holy Spirit need the Holy Spirit. The word of God is uh, supernaturally understood and supernaturally interpreted and applied. Anybody can read the book, but to truly genuinely understand it, we need the help and enablement of God's spirit to come to a passage like this. And that's true of every verse, every word of God's word, but especially true in Revelation, isn't it? Especially true. How many of y'all have read Revelation? A few of you, some of you? How many of you got to the end and you're like, I know exactly what that book means? <laughs> Maybe you're like me and you get through the first paragraph and you're like, huh? Uh, what's, what's going on here? Well, hopefully with a little bit of study, let's really employ all three now as we proceed into this. There's a predominant theme in these 14 verses that I just read to you and it's this. Only Jesus is worthy to be praised. The predominant theme of our chapter this morning, if you uh, tune out right now and don't hear anything else that we have to say, if you don't hear anything else uh, from this passage, hear this, only Jesus is worthy of your praise. Only Jesus is worthy. And this is really the starting place for our our entire series. It's like, why, why do we worship? Why do we follow Christ? Why is this idea of what is an authentic follower of Christ even important to you or to me? Well, it's really because he alone is worthy to be sought. He alone is worthy to be sought. And why can we even say that? What makes Jesus uniquely worthy of our praise and the praise of all of heaven and all of creation? Well, that's what the scripture reveals for us. And so let's, uh, let's dig into it and let us first hear, is your point number one, seek the worthy one. Let's first seek the worthy one. Why can we say that he alone is worthy? Well, let's seek him, let's find him, Let is, let's find out exactly why he is worthy of our praise. John's vision in chapter five, verse one here, he sees a throne where God the Father is seated. And in his hand, what is in his hand? He has a 
scroll. And it's a scroll with writing on both sides. Did you see that? It's a scroll with uh, writing on both sides. He's like, has all kinds of things to say, apparently. This is one of those things, actually, as a parent, that kind of drives me nuts. You know, we have these notebooks, and uh, kids or others will write things on one side of the piece of paper, and then they'll just flip it over, and, and they'll write on the next one, and they're not, they're just like my efficient, like uh, con- conservative kind of mentality. It's like, no, you gotta write on both sides, right? Like we print sheets of paper two-sided, right? You have to use both sides, right? And apparently that's like a, a heavenly ethic as well. Well, I don't want to take it too far. I don't want to take it too far, but they would. In those days, as they were writing on scrolls and parchment, they didn't have the abundance of paper like we do. And so they, had, they would use every corner, front and back. They had a lot to say. And now I'm just uh, being silly with us as we're, as we're digging into this here, but this is a scroll. It's written on both sides, and it's sealed how many times? It is sealed seven times. Now, maybe you're familiar with this concept, but in, in ancient days, they would have their scrolls, and the king or whoever was writing the message, the author would write it, and he would be writing to a specific person, and then as when he was finished, he would roll it up, and he had his official like wax seal that he would put with his imprint on it. And whoever the deliverer was, whoever the messenger, the, uh, you know, the ancient UPS or whoever it was that would deliver it, would be delivering it to uh, one person to the recipient, and only they were allowed to open up this scroll. Nobody else was privy to that information. It would be a violation of privacy and all those things if they were to open it. But it is sealed, and in this case, this scroll that the father on the throne has is a title or a deed to possession of the earth, giving the one to whom holds it complete authority and control. And what's really interesting as you continue to read in chapter six and, and on is that what's represented, there's, it's sealed seven times and the one who possesses this title deed to complete control or ownership over the entire created universe, as that person would open and break that seal open, it would unleash judgment upon the earth. Horrific judgment. As you read in the next chapter, And in order to wield that kind of power, that kind of authority, that kind of control, who in their right mind thinks that they got the stuff to possess that kind of authority? This is why, look at in verse two. This is why in verse two, this mighty angel proclaims with a loud voice and asks the question, who is worthy to open this scroll and break its seals? Now that's a really interesting thing of, of the person asking this question. It's, it's not by accident, it's a mighty angel that even this mighty being, this, this heavenly being, he himself does not have the authority or the power to open the scroll. Now, we don't know who it is. It could be Gabriel. Gabriel means the strength of God, and so maybe it's Gabriel asking this question, but really those details are irrelevant because the point is even this heavenly being cannot approach the throne to take possession of this scroll. Who is worthy? No one. Verse three, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to peer inside it, to just crack it open. None of the heavenly hosts, none of those on the earth and none of those buried in the ground. No one was worthy. And this provokes John, look here, it provokes John to weep and to weep. 
You ever wept violently before? You know, we weep violently in tragedy, grief, heartbreak, when we've been betrayed or abandoned, when somebody's been taken from us unexpectedly, that provokes our weeping. But can you imagine the thought, beloved? Here John is is, is before and he's saying, there is no one in control of the earth. No one is worthy of, of sovereignly reigning over the earth. No one can approach the throne. And this thought, it's really the atheistic thought of there is no God causes him to weep. Wouldn't you? To be without God and without hope in the world? The only thing that prevents violent weeping like this is the fact that there is a God who is ruling and reigning over all things in the, of the earth, every detail of your life and my life. That gives us hope. And look how the elder consoles him in verse five. He is weeping loudly, and the elder comes and he says, weep no more, but behold... He takes John's attention off the problem and he fixes his gaze on the worthy one. Isn't this awesome here, beloved? He consoles him. He turns his attention off of the problem and onto the prophesied king. He says, John, you've read the scriptures. Behold, here is the lion of the tribe of Judah the one promised in Genesis 49, the conquering king. He turns his attention to Isaiah 11. He says, no, the root of David, the one has conquered, is here, is among us. He turns his attention off of his weeping, off of the problem, and on to Christ, the one who conquered. He can open the scroll, and he can rip open its seven seals. Beloved, what did our king conquer? Who did he conquer? He crushed Satan's head, did he not? Genesis 3.15, he crushed Satan's head. He crushed sin's control. He defeated death. And then John, through his tears, he looks and he sees the lamb standing. The lamb who bears the marks of death. Standing as though it had been slain. Look at this in verse six. Between the throne, between the four living creatures among the elders, there is the lamb standing. Now who are these four living creatures? They are the ones uh, that Ezekiel sees also in, in Ezekiel chapter one. Go and read it this afternoon. They are the cherubim, these angels that stand around the throne. They are the ones who are before the king of kings, before God himself. The elders likely are representatives of the church. There's a lot of debate who these are. They're likely believers that have gone to heaven before the tribulation. They're representative of us who are there. And among them is this lamb, not the sweet, cuddly, woolly, stuffed animal that your daughter probably has by her bed. But this, beloved, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. The one who bears the marks of death, who had been slain, who is death on a cross. And he is the one here now standing. And isn't it an interesting description? Do you see that there? Like, isn't it this description here of him that this lamb, he's standing, been slain, he has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God that have been sent into all the earth. Like, what in the world? 
Well, what do horns represent? They represent strength. They represent strength. Here this lamb is demonstrating the the, uh, omnipotence, the almighty strength of God in all of its perfection. What do eyes represent? They represent vision and knowledge, understanding and wisdom. Here is the lamb who is uh, not only all-powerful but also all-knowing demonstrating the omniscience of God. The seven spirits is really just a reference to the Holy Spirit. Again, a reference to uh, Isaiah 11 and the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. And on this lamb, who possesses uh, the attributes of God, whom the Holy Spirit is upon him, he is the one and the only one able to approach the throne and take the scroll all others bow before the throne. We read that verse like, like, it's, like it's nothing. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Why could he do it? Because he was God. Because he had conquered death. Because he was the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David and the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This one is worthy. This one is is worthy. Beloved, are you seeking the worthy one? Are you seeking the worthy one? Psalm 105, verse five, urges us to seek the Lord and his strength, to seek his presence continually. See, we can't worship one who we don't know. And these verses give us a glorious depiction of who Jesus is, don't they? This is who he is. He is the conquering king, the atoning sacrifice, the mighty lion, and the humble lamb. He is strong and wise. He is worthy of all our praise. And today, as a follower of Christ, would you seek him? Would you, would you seek him? Would you uh, take eyes, your eyes off the problem and put your eyes onto Christ to behold him? To behold means to stop and look, to gaze intently, to gaze deeply upon this one. You know, in bike riding, we just had the VCCR, so this is on my mind. In bike riding, there's a, a kind of a proverb of when you're riding, and that's a, that says, look where you want to go. If you look at the pothole, if you look at the rock, if you look at the oncoming traffic, your, your bike is going to veer into that. Your eyes lead the body. And so you don't want to look where you don't want to go. Don't, if you look at the rock, you're gonna hit the rock. But you pick your line and you make your way through it. Sometimes you can't see because you're going fast and you're bombing down a hill and so you just pray to the Lord and <laughs> pray there's nothing down there. No, just kidding. You look where you want to go. And isn't this so true in our lives, beloved? We get ourselves in a pickle. We have a problem at work. There's a relational problem. And all we do is we just fix our attention on the problem. We fix our attention on the problem. And we, we, we think about our sin. And we think about our struggle. We think about whatever it might be when our eyes needs to get off the problem. And where? Onto Christ. Look where you want to go. Do you want to follow Christ? Then get your eyes on him. Eyes on Christ. Are you feeling the weight of your sin? Are you burdened by it? Then look to the atoning work of Christ on your behalf. 
Look to it. Not to how you are gonna get yourself out of the problem. Not to the pain that it's causing. Not to the depression that it might be causing. We, we turn our eyes away from that and we look to the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the conquering lamb. We follow after him. Are you, are you feeling weak, burdened, heavy? Look to the strength of Christ. His power to defeat sin and death. Look to his strength. Are you feeling directionless in your life? You don't know where to go. You don't know what, what you, what's happening in, in your relationship or in your job or, or, or with school or, or just in general. You're directionless. Look to the wisdom of Christ. What does he value? How has he gifted you? What are kingdom priorities? The gospel, the great commission. The great commandment, how can you live out those things in your life? What will maximize your giftedness in your ministry? Then follow hard after the wisdom of Christ. Look not to your own ways, but seek the worthy one. And when our eyes are fixed on Christ, when our minds are flooded with thoughts of Christ, it drowns out our problems. When our minds are flooded with thoughts of Christ, you will respond in worship. See, verse eight continues the scene with everyone's response to who this worthy one is. We respond to the worthy one. We respond to the worthy one. And so now there's who can take the scroll? He takes it. Who is he? He is the conquering king and the suffering servant and all these great uh, pictures. And he goes and takes the scroll. In verse eight, at the handoff, those four angels and those 24 elders, they fall down before him. Do you see that? And they don't fall down just simply because they're holding a harp and these bowls of incense in their hand, you know, like some parent carrying a kid and, and, you know, like a diaper bag and another kid and all that. That's not why they fall down. They fall down in the same way like the, uh, the soldiers coming to arrest Jesus in John 18. Are you familiar with that scene? John 18, it's John's account of, of Jesus' betrayal and arrest, and Judas is bringing a cohort of soldiers, bringing, as he says, lanterns, torches, and weapons, and they come, and they confront Jesus, and Jesus displays power. They say, hey, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, ego me, I am. And at a demonstration of his deity, of his authority, they fall to the ground. See, beloved, when Jesus demonstrates his authority, people are on their faces. There in John 18 and right here as well. This, just, this isn't just like some moseying up like a nice little handoff of a piece of paper between two friends. This and Jesus taking the scroll from the Father is a demonstration of a, an authority that God alone possesses. And our response is to fall before him. Is to fall before him. I made a joke about the, uh, the harp and the bowls full of incense, you know, these which we're told what they are, they're the prayers of the saints. Isn't that kind of a cool thought? That when we pray, there's that our prayers, like in Psalm 141, verse two, that says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. And they're holding these, they're representative of it. And so every time we pray, it's like a pleasing aroma before the Lord. Like when you walk in Hotel Emma, they just have this scent that just makes you happy. Unlike when you walk in the, the temple, uh, the, the church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, which is the, the site where Jesus' tomb is. I don't know, maybe I've explained this to you before, but uh, this, 
something very uh, distinct sticks out to me when I visited it uh, a decade ago or better, 12 years ago, 2007. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is the site of Jesus' tomb. It used to be outside the, the city gates and now it's all within and there's this massive cathedral that's been built around it. And, and within the, the cathedral, there's uh, several different Orthodox churches that kind of control it, but they're all, nobody really has control. They're, they're, they all actually kind of compete and I don't even know how they got in on it. It's like, can't we have maybe a cathedral? We can have a redemption cathedral there or something, but, but all kind of around it and all of them burn incense. Many traditional churches still burn incense like they did in the Old Testament as a, a sensory thing to their worship. And, and, and yet in it, you walk in this and it's an old cathedral. There's no like ventilation and it's packed with people who are from all over the world and, and really Israel's pretty hot and so there's just a bunch of smells of BO and everything. But what I remember from being in there is just the horrible smell. Like if you were a pregnant woman, you did not wanna go in there, right? You just, you know, when you're pregnant, they're like, senses are heightened and all that, and it's just, you know, leads to vomiting and all kinds of things that just no good, right? We're j- joking, because everybody was like, yep, that's it, you know? It's like you can be cooking pancakes, you know, downstairs, and your wife is upstairs sleeping, pancakes are like the most bland food in the whole world, and you're cooking them downstairs like it's a nice thing, and she's upstairs vomiting because of the smell of pancakes, so... I'm just teasing, I'm just teasing, I'm just teasing. That's not what's happening here, is it? These are pleasing scents to the Lord. They have bowed down in worship before the Lord. They're bringing our prayers to Christ, this pleasing aroma. And what do they do as they fall before the Lord? Verse nine, they sing a new song. They sing a new song to the Lord. And you know what I love about these next two verses here? This song, the simple new song that they sing is they are singing back to Christ what has just been revealed about him. Do you see that? They have now put to song, and I won't sing it for you, don't worry. They are now put to song the things that have just been revealed in this scene. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. They have just seen this happen and now they ascribe worth to God. The glory due to the lamb who was, look, slain. This truth that has just been revealed that, they, that he has been slain and by your blood you ransom people for God. That his, in his conquering of sin and death, he has now bought, redeemed a people for God's own possession. He has brought them to him and they are singing it back to him. And it is a a multi-ethnic group, is it not? From every tribe and language and people and nation. Beloved, I can't wait to get to heaven and just see the diverse choir of God's people around God's throne singing like this. That's God's work. That is God's work. In a day where we are all about our preferences and we make church decisions based on the style of music and the style of preaching and the style of kids ministry and all those things, that there is something beautiful and healthy and God glorifying and God uh, ordained when a group of people who have various backgrounds that come from all across the globe, that have all kinds of musical preferences and all kinds of uh, sports teams preferences and eat all various kinds of food, but they gather together uh, to worship Christ and the only thing that draws them together is their common redemption in Jesus Christ. 
Oh God, would you do that in our body? That even Redemption Bible Church would be a picture of that. Only God can build a church like that. Only God builds a choir like that. And this glorifies him. And they're singing it back to him. They're singing it back to him. And then it goes to the future, doesn't it? And so there's this present aspect of what they're singing, what just happened. There's this past aspect back to uh, glory. And then there's this future aspect in verse 10 that you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. You can read Revelation 20 uh, later and hear all about that. But this is the future hope that we have when we will rule and reign with Christ in his kingdom on this earth. And this is what really characterizes a good song. As you think through the choruses that we've just sung, the hymns that we've just sung, there's a present aspect. God, we give you, you make our, you bring our chaos back into order. There's a thinking back to the finished work of Christ on the cross, and there's a future element as we sing, come on, come back quickly, Lord. And they are just rehearsing what they has been revealed about Christ, and they are now ascribing to him the glory due his name. You ever had a special moment like this? You ever had, maybe you've been reading your Bible, you were singing a song, maybe you're reading a book, and you just had a thought of Christ. And it warmed your heart in such a way that maybe your expression, your burst of praise was just, wow, Lord. Maybe in those moments, if you don't know what to say, you can just repeat these lyrics right here. Just something simple. Maybe it was more profound than that. But I love this, because in verse 11, that choir of what was just 28, it grows, doesn't it? Now in verse 11, there's a sea of voices. There's countless numbers of angels, myriads and myriads, thousands of thousands. All what John is seeing here is just a, a uncountable number, all singing. They don't wanna be left out of this worship. They too have just seen this demonstration of authority that Christ has exacted by taking the scroll and they don't wanna be left out and so they get in on it as well in verse 12, singing with a quiet voice. What does it say? A loud voice, that's right. Come on, you can respond. It's a loud voice. They're singing with a loud voice, ascribing to the Lord the glory that is due to him. Circle that little thing, singing in a loud voice. Circle that in your Bible so you can remember it. And they are ascribing to him, worthy is the lamb who was slain. It's as if they are now taking this one concept and going deeper into it. In the, this next chorus here, they're saying because he has been slain, he therefore deserves all power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. And these seven attributes, they belong to Christ and each was demonstrated in his death. His power was demonstrated when he was killed. His wealth, his abundance of grace was demonstrated. The wisdom of God in the redemptive plan of history was demonstrated. His might, flexing it over those that would be his accusers. His honor as he rose, his glory, his blessing, all demonstrated as he was slain. And so they sing it out in a loud voice but the song really comes to a crescendo. Their response comes to a crescendo as every created being, 
There we see it again, every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, even all that is in them, they come to sing this final verse to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, his kingly authority, his humble sacrifice, be blessing and honor and glory, these four things in might forever and ever. Each part is getting bigger, isn't it? Even each part, more are joining into the song, more uh, resounding. And really the picture that we get as it even comes to a conclusion in verse 14, then the four living creatures just close it with this expression of amen. And then the 24 elders, they fall down and they worship before him. But what we get, this picture in the throne room of heaven that we get of worship is one that is loud and lively. Do we not? It's loud and it is lively. Now, it's not wild or unrestrained, but it is loud and, un, and lively. When we seek Jesus, when we behold him for who he is and what he's done, when we find him, how could our response be any different, beloved? When the thoughts of who Christ is and what he has done, how could our response be anything other than loud or lively. If your response is kind of subdued or ho-hum, apathetic, I would argue that you haven't fully understood. You've not actually found Christ. Now don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying like drama and theatrics and like these, you know, expressive emotions or, you know, like the signs of true worship. But what we do get in this picture in Revelation 5, that true worship, truth moves us to respond. You can't truly encounter Christ with and, and not genuinely be affected. So why not let it be loud and lively, right? So I would encourage you, dig deep in your study of Christ. Pursue him with all you have and let it burst out of you in praise. Let it burst out of you through prayer and song. See, Jesus, we've said this all along, Jesus and Jesus alone is worthy of our praise and the entire praise of the universe. I would ask you, what characterizes your response to Christ this morning? As you have heard the truth of the gospel, the work that God has done, are you bored and indifferent? Just kind of skeptical of it? Are you proud? Are you disappointed? Are you wild and unrestrained? Or is it loud and lively, unashamed because God has done great things? Because the lamb was slain and now the lion reigns. Beloved Jesus, Jesus alone is worthy of our praise. And so let's bring our praise to him now, shall we? Let's bring our prayers, our, our praise of our prayers now. Would you bow with me and let's pray. God in heaven, we just say this to you now. God, in, in our own hearts, maybe we need to just say it out loud in a loud voice. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. God, we just say you are worthy as we pray. Here, God, we, we're just recounting in our minds. We're recounting now wherever we are seated. God, this is what you have done, and we just say you are worthy. We say thank you. 
say, thank you, Lord. Lord, these, these short prayers are, are really, really actually profound because, Lord, even as we're just praying, sometimes I don't even have the words to say. But we can just say thank you. And you're worth it. And so would you, God, would you, even as you're working in our hearts this week, would you make us worshipers? Eyes off our problems, eyes off the fear in this world, and eyes onto you, Jesus. Help us in that, even now, as we ascribe to you your supreme worth. In Christ's name, amen.